Thanks for listening to one of our messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. in person and online. To find out more about our church or to connect to any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you seek to follow Jesus. Yo, how are we doing? Good, man. Welcome to CBC. If we haven't met, my name is Charlie. I'm the senior pastor here. Uh, I usually hang right over here after the service. Come and say hi. If you really want to mess with me, if I say nice to meet you, just say we've met before. And that'll make me feel good on the inside. Um, no, hey, did you guys see what we did today? May catch it. There's a reason why we sang that God is with us in the fire, in the flood. Anybody? Yeah, if you were here last week, you get all the jokes. Uh, so... Last week in the service, the Holy Spirit descended in fire. We had a small fire uh, right above that exit sign. And I've been encouraged to tell everybody today that we've had all the exit signs checked out and replaced, so that will not happen again, okay? Or we're going to ask if God wants us to be Pentecostal. One of the two things will happen by the end of the service, but it is safe and sound, everybody, just in case you were thinking about it, just in case you stayed home today because you're like, I'm not going to that place. Uh, It's too close. But no, we, we love that you're here. We love that we get to worship together. I loved, you know, we have a really great serve team, leadership team here. And when that happened, there's so many people that popped up and helped and deacons and other people that just are attracted to fire, like all the teenagers. Uh, but this morning, before we dive into the text, we remember why we're here. We remember what God is doing. We have this phrase that we like to say every Sunday, the move of the spirit is inward to conviction, not outward to critique. What that means is that outside of this space, the world around us is overly critical because we're overly insecure, overly prideful. And in this space, we come to the scriptures, not with an eye for others, but with an eye for ourselves. We come to the scriptures and we ask the present God in this place to change us. We ask him to use these words that he inspired thousands of years ago to show us more what it looks like to walk in the ways of Jesus because we believe that's a better way to live. And so we're going to open the scriptures and we're going to pray that God doesn't work in us today because he promised he always will through the scriptures. But before we do that, we just take a minute and we acknowledge that we're here to ask questions about how God is moving in us to, to be convicted and not overly critical because sometimes that stops the spirits working. So I'm going to lead us in a prayer before we open the text uh, that God might move today. Join me. Holy Spirit, thank you for residing in followers of Jesus, for giving us the ability to see the goodness of God, for motivating, being a catalyst for change in our lives. Holy Spirit, thank you for being more powerful than the forces outside of us, for breaking death's grip and the grip of sin and bondage in our world. Jesus, thank you. As we open the scriptures this morning, Holy Spirit, I ask that you speak to us, that you meet us here, that you allow us to see how this morning you're showing us more of God's goodness so that we might be able to walk in those ways. If you're comfortable, just take a few seconds and say a prayer to yourself and ask that the Holy Spirit might speak to your spirit this morning. And I ask that you pray for me. God might use the preparation <clears throat> to show us uh, what this text teaches us about how we're supposed to respond in an angry world around us.
Pray these things in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. We're in Romans 12. We're going to pick it up in verse 14 in just a second. I was thinking about our, the world that we live in and how we have a, a proliferation problem in our world. What, what that means is we like, especially in the States, to be bigger and better, right? I read somewhere years ago when Flower Mound and Marcus in our area were rebuilding their football stadiums that when everyone finished second, I think it might have been Marcus, they added one more seat than Flower Mound could hold just so they could have the bigger stadium. And I don't put it past them. There was back and forth wars between New York and Chicago on the different towers they had to see who had the tallest tower. We live in a culture of proliferation, which means we want to go bigger and better. My, my favorite example of this is Super Bowl rings. So the first Super Bowl rings went to this team that I don't know is worth mentioning. The first Super Bowl ring was really kind of mild-mannered. It was a one-carat diamond set in this kind of brassy gold-looking ring. It was very simple and clean. That was about 50-ish years ago. The LA Rams won the Super Bowl this last year. And let me describe that ring to you just a little bit. Each year, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Instead of the one-carat diamond that went to some team not named the Cowboys, the Rams had 20 carats of white diamonds, along with custom-cut blue and yellow sapphires set in white and yellow gold. And you're thinking, my goodness, that is not even all of it. But what really stands out is that the top of this ring spins off to reveal a miniature of their stadium inside the ring, complete with remnants of actual field turf and a snippet of the actual game ball inside. That's right, everybody. We love to make things bigger and better. We live in Texas, you know? And look, here's why I want to bring that up is I think we live in a world that, that continues to one-up each other. And in some things, that's good. We just spent the last few weeks talking about how the Christian community is called to out-other one another. How we're, we're called to out-love those around us, out-serve those around us, that our job is so love and capacity is so people can only see the goodness of God. But the problem is we live in a culture that likes to one-up one another, but we also live in a culture that's mad. So what happens when we're not only getting more and more and more in how we show our maybe hopefully affection for one another, but when the world around us is proliferating anger and angst and hate. There's a poll done every year called the Gallup Global Emotions Report, which looks at the experiences people have in more than 140 countries. And this last year, they said that we're losing our temper more than ever. 22% of adults admitted they felt more angry. And that's the highest level uh, since, 20, since 2005 when they started. In 2021, let's just look at road rage as an example. In 2021, it was the deadliest year for road rage in the history of this country, with an average of 44 people being shot and killed or wounded during road rage shootings per month in this country. There's another poll put out where they took 3,000 people in the United States and they said 84% of the people surveyed said Americans are angrier today compared to a generation ago. It said when asked about their own feelings, 42% of those polled said they were angrier in the, in the past year than they had been further back in time. We live in a culture that seemingly doesn't respond proportionally but proliferates our response towards all things. What happens when that's anger? I love what one author says about Christians and followers of Jesus, because if you think we're immune to this, you're absolutely wrong. He says that as followers of Jesus, the Christian is not just like everybody else with a slight difference. He's essentially different. He's a different nature and a different man. 
There's an article in the Atlantic last year written by a guy named Charles Doug, who writes a book called The Power of Habit. And he said, I love this quote. He said, recently, however, the tenor of our anger has shifted. It's become less episodic and more persistent, a constant drumbeat in our lives. And then I go back and say that followers of Jesus aren't just supposed to be different. They are different. We're a new nature and a new man. How do we respond to the increase in anger in our society? Do we respond in kind or do we respond out of kind? That's where Paul's going to go today. And so our verse 14 begins like this. Bless those who persecute you and do not curse them. And you're thinking, yeah, I've heard this before. We're not supposed to hurt the people that hurt us. But it goes a little deeper than that. Bless those who persecute you and do, uh, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. In the first century world, in the Roman times, if you have remembered the history of this book, why he's writing this book is you have two factions of Jesus followers that both thought the other faction was wrong. You had the Jewish people that were Christians that got kicked out of Rome under Claudius in 49-ish AD because he didn't like the uprisings they were starting. And they came back five years later when he died and Nero took over. And you had these Christians, the Jewish Christians that thought the movement of God dies with us were that important. And all Americans said, yeah. And and they came back and found their churches in Rome without Jewish people kind of thriving, but they did things a little differently. Somebody this morning stopped me and said, Charlie, we took communion last week. We're going to do it two weeks in a row? I said, yeah, you know? It's amazing how, it's a good thing. It's amazing how we have the ways that we worship and we can't imagine doing differently than the ways that we've always done it. And so these Jewish Christians came back and said, you're not supposed to do that over there. You're not supposed to eat that or sing this song or quote the scriptures this way. You're missing the point of Jesus. And so Paul writes the book of Romans and says, guys, guys, you're missing the point. Both of you need the same amount of grace and both of you need the same amount of Jesus. And then he moves on and says, not only are we going to be loving towards insiders, but outsiders aren't going to be loving to you all the time. And how you respond is paramount to how people see Christ. And so right now in the uh, Roman world, when he's writing this, it's relatively docile. Christians got picked on and they were looked down on, but there wasn't any big persecution around 51, 52 when this was written. But fast forward to 64 AD and you're going to see Nero, the same 16-year-old who got a, uh, made the emperor in 54. You're going to see Nero start to really persecute Christians after something called the Great Fire of Rome. He blames Christians. Some historians say that he started just so he could blame Christians. And the stories you've heard of the great persecution in the first church, that's where this starts. All the gladiator stuff when they got thrown into the arena with lions and tigers and bears. Oh my, that's where this starts. And for the next 300 years, it's a roller coaster of heavily persecuted to lightly persecuted to heavily persecuted to lightly persecuted. It wasn't a fun way to live. So the context of this verse is not only looking backwards, but it's also looking forward to prepare the people for the future that is to come. But, but when we talk about persecution here, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse, I think two things we have to do. One is we have to remember that the church globally is a persecuted thing. Open Doors talks about the stats on Christian persecution. Just a couple to throw at you. It says that more than 70 million Christians have been martyred in the course of history. More than half that were martyred in the 20th century. In the 21st century, roughly 100,000 to 160,000 Christians were killed each year. Roughly a million Christians were martyred worldwide between 2000 and 2010. None of that's here for the most part. It's just important for us to know. Open Doors came out with some figures this year. They said that 360 million Christians last year lived in countries where persecution was significant. 
5,600 Christians were murdered. More than 6,000 were detained or in prison. Another 4,000 were kidnapped. 5,000 churches and other religious facilities were destroyed. Around the world, roughly one out of eight Christians live in a country that is hostile to their faith. That does two things for me. One, it reminds me how good we have it here. It does. We fight some fights and we talk about words and we talk about values and we talk about how we feel like maybe sometimes our faith is being stripped away, put it in the real context of the rest of the world and that is small potatoes. Doesn't mean we don't fight for good things, but let's be thankful for the grace that God has given us. Two, it reminds me that when Jesus said, you will be persecuted, it wasn't a, uh, a hopeful promise that, that maybe you'll miss it. It was a principle that we live into because the world didn't like him because the systems of Jesus fly in the face of the systems of the world in most contexts and countries that Christianity finds itself in. We don't strive for power in the same way. We don't define success in the same way. We don't view people in the same way. And so when we speak up against those things, naturally and rightfully so, people see that the ways of Jesus are different. One author said it like this, you can hate them or love them, but you can't ignore them. Why do white, Christian Why do white Christians confront others with the reality of God? You can't be neutral in such cases. These people must be crowned or crucified because they are either mightily right or mighty wrong. And so we acknowledge, we begin by acknowledging that persecution in our faith doesn't mean something's gone wrong more often than not. It means you probably are doing something right. Now it's going to go on to say, don't seek it out. Don't be that person, but acknowledge what it is. And in this context, what he's doing is he's laying a framework for what happens when we're persecuted. Because let me tell you something, we're going to get there, but if somebody doesn't like me or hurts me, I want to respond, not just in kind, but in a way that makes a statement. And when you look at the biblical position on how to respond to injustice, for the most part, it's pretty uh, similar. Let me, let, me, let me show you. Let me point out a verse in the Old Testament you're probably thinking about. It's Leviticus 24. Anyone who injures their neighbor is to be injured in the same manner. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The one who has inflicted the injury must suffer the same injury. But then in the New Testament, Jesus says this. You've heard that it said, anyone, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do, uh, you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you in the cheek, also let him turn the other cheek. And what you have to do there is ask the question, is the Bible saying the same thing or different things? Is the Bible contradicting itself, yes or no? And if you really understand the context in Leviticus, you have to come to the conclusion that that statement that he makes about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is a means and method of grace in the ancient Near East. It was a violent culture. And so to go to a country and a group of people that only knew war for progress, read your Old Testament and say, you do not get to inflict more pain on others than they've inflicted on you was radically gracious. If somebody hurt your kid, you killed them. If somebody insulted your kid, you killed them. <laughs> Jesus comes and says, hey man, if they take an ox, then you get to take an ox and nothing more. He's stopping the proliferation of violence in a country that traded in the currency of war. And so when you read through those statements, what really you see from the Old and New Testament is the, 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 the growth of God's idea of forgiveness and kindness and not retaliation. What you see is the spirit of the law. That's why in the Old Testament, God made his people every seven years and every 49 years. He made his people right all wrongs. He made his people forgive injustice no matter how unjust it was done to you. He made his people forgive all debts no matter what they owed because God has always been a God of redemption and forgiveness and kindness in all cultures. And so when we get to this text, when it says, don't persecute those who persecute you, rather 
bless them, you have to start with this idea that the scripture's always been the same, but how it talks about how we fight injustice. That's really difficult because the move from persecution to blessing is a difficult one because I want to, when someone hurts me, hurt them back. You know, I'm learning as I coach soccer that I have more deeply felt emotions than I thought I had. I, I'm learning that I am a more proud dad when my kid scores a goal and I never knew the depth of that. I'm learning how competitive I am. I'm a competitive person. And, and these three-year-old girls just don't seem to care what the score is. This last week, we played a game at seven o'clock at night, which was a bad idea to begin with. And it was under the lights. And half the game, these girls are running around looking at the lights saying, look at the rainbows while we're getting scored on, you know? I'm like, those aren't rainbows, we're playing soccer. One girl who loves the idea of soccer but refuses to play soccer went over to our little sideline area and sat down. I said, hey, kiddo, it's your turn to come play. And she said, I can't. I said, why not? She said, my shoes came in tied. I said, both of them? She said, yes. I said, at the same time. (laughs) We had another parent there, and they said she got over there and untied her shoes right away so she didn't have to go back in. (laughs) I thought, that's a smart kid, you know? I'm learning that I have all these deeply felt emotions. I remember the first time another three-year-old pushed my daughter over. I wanted to form tackle this child and break her. You know, that sounds horrible to say, but this well of emotion came up inside of me and I was like, you just hurt my kid. There is no such thing as a proportional response when it's family, you know? There's a writer, a scientist, a philosopher who talks about the idea of anger. And he has, there's a coin that, there's a phrase that's coined called the revenge impulse and he defines it. He said the revenge impulse in our society is when anger becomes a cycle of recrimination, rumination, and ever expanding fury. It's a professor from the University of Washington who wrote a paper on the rise in anger in our country and said, when we want revenge, we keep going until we feel like we've taught the other person a lesson. Quote, the goal is to hurt the other person. His name is Thomas Tipp. The problem with proliferation is it only breeds more and more violence. It doesn't breed forgiveness and reconciliation, and it doesn't seem to be what God has called us to be. And so he says, don't persecute the people that persecute you. Rather, and here's the move, bless them. It's incredibly profound. We did a whole series on blessing last Thanksgiving. You can go and give it a listen, but this is how we define blessing. We said to be a blessing is to be satisfied in God and to spread it to others. So it's not satisfied in stuff, but rather a, a state of satisfaction in who God is. We so often in our country, in our, in our culture, define blessing as material stuff, and that just makes God like the constant giver, like a good report card or reward. And blessing is not material. Blessing is a deep, deep, deep-rooted satisfaction with the person of God, with the promises that he has for us, and our ability to spread that to all of those around us even when things are awful. One of my favorite phrases I've read in the last year was an author that wrote, the Apostle Paul entered heaven to the cheers of those he martyred. That's how the gospel works. Can you imagine being in a place where you hurt somebody so deeply and they respond with deep kindness? Don't persecute those who persecute you. Rather, bless those who hurt you. Show uh, an ability to be satisfied in the deep goodness of God, even when the world around you isn't good to you. And really what this comes down to is a conversation, a conversation about lack versus abundance. 
What it comes down to as we are persecuted people, if you are, is do you then respond out of a lack of justice being done or an abundance of knowing that God ultimately is just? How we respond in the middle of persecution tells us if we're responding from the lack of justice we see all around us or the abundance that we believe God to be good. Jesus said in John 10.10, this is uh, why I've come. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I've come so they would have life and have it abundantly. You can't bless others if you're operating from lack. You can only curse. That's why we say hurt people hurt people. But if we focus on how much we've been given and how much we're blessed and how much God has forgiven us, then we consistently operate out of a wealth of abundance that allows us, even in the moment of pain, to offer blessing instead of cursing. It's this idea that we trust that God is still good even in the deepest moments when it doesn't look like his goodness is felt by all people. We can be satisfied in the character of God regardless of the context of our day-to-day. That's what it means to bless others. And so Paul is radically shifting these people's mindset around what it means to respond to the world around you that doesn't love you. And it's gonna get harder and harder and harder. He's saying, you're going to respond not from a lack of what's been done to you, but remembering the abundance that God has given you now and forever. Spurgeon says it like this, have patience, believer. Eternity will right the wrongs of all time. So he's going to say, here's how we start, is we're going to do this move from blessing from from persecution to blessing. And then he's going to define it a little bit just in case we're dense people, which we are in the middle sections. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another and do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Do not be conceited. His section here, the whole section is about the power of people to be present with other people. He's saying, I want you to bless others and this is what it looks like. You will rejoice with those who rejoice. You'll weep with those who weep. You cannot do that if you're not present with people. One of my favorite stories of Jesus, favorite stories is when he's coming off the mountain in Matthew 8. So if you remember it, Matthew 8 is the end of the Sermon on the Mount, his latest and greatest, the biggest sermon. The whole thing is about what the kingdom of God looks like. He gets up there and for hours says, you want a picture of what the world looks like when Jesus is fully in control? Here is what it is. And there's three chapters on it. Just beautiful depiction of what the world could be if the people of God lived in the ways of God all the time. And it says he's coming off the mountain and he's encountered with a leper. He's encountered with this leper. And just so you guys know, leprosy was an unknown disease in the Old and New Testaments. They knew people had it, didn't know how they got it and how it spread. So you were cast out. You left the camp, sometimes for weeks, sometimes for life. And when you went into the city, you had to yell, leper, 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 leper. So people knew that and they could run the other direction when you moved toward them. Incredibly isolating. And then it was just a nasty disease. You lost appendages sometimes. You didn't look good. It just affected all of you. It says this leper came to Jesus right after he talked about the goodness of the kingdom of God. And he said, hey, can you heal me? And Jesus said, ew. No, Jesus uh, looked at the leper. I don't know if you guys know this about God, but he can kind of do whatever he wants, you know? So like when God heals somebody, he has full creative reign to do it. He could like stop three times on the ground and be like, "Badam, you're done, you know? He could do whatever he needs to do to heal this person. And you know what he did to the leper? He reached out and touched him. I love that. Because this man that hadn't been touched probably in years says, can you heal me? And Jesus didn't have to, but he gave him physical context and I'm here for you. And yes. 
I think what Paul is getting at when he says, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another, do not be haughty, but associated with the lowly, that word lowly there, either means do the dirty job nobody wants to do, or live with people that you think are beneath you, either one of those uh, interpretations are good. I think what he's getting at in this text is there's absolutely no way that we can fully bless other people without being present with other people. I think we're a culture that likes to throw money at problems. And there's some, there's some okayness to that. That we're a culture that likes to solve problems or feel like we're fully involved by writing checks. And at CBC, we deeply believe that's okay. Crosswordbible.org. No, it's slash giving. Um, we need money to make this thing work. And, and Paul says, hey, if you can't be here in present, we need money. I'll take it. Paul says this in his epistles. But I think God's desire of what full blessing is, is that we're fully present with others as we're showing them the ways and the goodness of the kingdom of God. So, so in a culture that, that likes to write checks and feel like we're doing good, he says, do that, but also do good with those people. It's a challenge. It's a challenge not just to give money to, let's take a CBC ministry laundry love, but show up and wash some things with some homeless people on Tuesday nights. I led for years trips to Mexico and we built houses. And, you know, one of the questions people asked is, can't you just pay the workers in Mexico to do it instead of taking, you know, however many high school kids to do it yourself? And we said, yeah, we could. But there's a lot of good that comes from and, and you know, the, the ministry you work with and it, it actually makes more money for the ministry to keep building houses. But beyond all of that, there is a joy from the people we give the keys to when we had that ceremony every Thursday to us when you're present with the people you're trying to bless that you can't put a number on or a dollar sign. And so I think what Paul is saying is you're going to bless those who persecute you and the only way to do that is to come alongside them and be present with them. There's no other way to fully bless people. It's a challenge, not just to pray for, not just to send money to, but actually step into the pain of others, rejoice with them and weep with them and say, I'm here with you to show you that God is good. One of my favorite quotes is by Henry Nouwen. He talks about the busyness of the world and he talks about how we're, we're torn between meetings and agendas and to-do items, to feel like we are something. And he says in the middle of that, I wonder more and more, if the first thing shouldn't be to know people by name, to eat and drink with them, to listen to their stories and to tell your own, and to let them know with words, handshakes, and hugs that you do not simply like them, you truly love them. I think that is gospel. And so he says to these people, you're going to bless those who persecute you by coming alongside of them, even if they don't like you. It's, radically, it's a radically different approach to how we're supposed to deal with the injustice towards us. The ultimate expression of humility is to look past your desires to the deep, deep needs of others. Last few weeks, we focused on what humility looks like in the context of Romans 12, and this is where he lands it. It even looks like looking into the desires of those people who don't like you. Be with them. Understand where they're coming from. And then he broadens the scope out a little bit in the last verses. This is the thesis statement is you're going to bless those. This is what blessing looks like. Get involved with it and don't just give to it. Do both those, please. And then he says, because this is deep underlying question, the great thing, who deals with those people that hurt other people? I mean, if I can't do it, who can and why? And so he says in verse 17, don't repay evil for uh, anyone, evil for evil. Consider what is good before all people. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all people. Do not avenge yourselves, dear friends, but give place to God's wrath, for it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. A couple Old Testament verses that he quotes in there. 
One thing you need to know is that was radically different. Even in the Old Testament, in Judaism, revenge was permissible against non-Israelites in the case of personal injury. In the Roman world, revenge was sought after and it was uh, publicized and it was prized. And so he says, you're not going to take any violent action. You're going to leave that to God. And you've got to understand a couple different things here. He says, don't repay anyone evil for evil. Let God do that. James says it like this, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God desires. You have to recognize first and foremost that your wrath and God's wrath is different and there's a why. And even if there wasn't a why, God says, don't do it. So we close the Bible and we walk home, but there is a why. There's a difference between your wrath and between God's wrath. And it starts with this idea that even though you think you're just, you're not as just as you think you are. It's this idea that no matter how much you think you're acting in pure justice, you'll never fully be acting in justice because you want to hurt somebody like they hurt you. I remember the first time that I picked my kid up from daycare and there was a noticeable, I had to sign this form. They said, hey, can you come here? You got to sign this form for me. And I said, she's already getting in trouble, just like her mom. Um, and dad, <laughs> um, many more of these to come as she grows up, you know? And it was because a kid had, had bitten her. And there was a, like, I could see the teeth marks on my child's. I could see them. I'm a pastor in the community right next door to this. And so I said to this worker in the daycare, point out which child it was that bit my child. I did not have a lot of compassion on my mind. And she said, rightfully so, I cannot do that. I said, sure you can. It's just you and me right here. Sure you can. I won't tell. And she said, no, I really, I really can't tell you. And I said, yes, you can. And she said, you need to leave, sir. I said, okay. But no, I mean, that's kind of what it means is even though we, we think we're, we're just, I think our emotions take over and we can't control our desires and emotions because next point, we're not righteous. And so what happens is God says, don't take vengeance into your own hands because you are not as just as you think you are. First of all, because you come from a pretty bad place and you don't know how to punish it. Two, I think that the difference between God's wrath and ours is that he says that it's not our job to punish because right wrath comes from righteousness. And so when we talk about whose role it is, he says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. You know, we really like to believe. We really like to believe when we first find grace that we needed it. And then after that, we look back and say, man, look what I found, you know? It's this cycle of meritocracy that we kind of weave into sometimes our version of the gospel and we forget that we needed forgiveness just as much as the next person, that we needed God to give us grace just as much as the people that hurt us. And really what it comes down to is trust. In those moments, when you go back to lack in abundance, when he says vengeance is mine, in those moments, do we believe that one day God is good enough to overdo the ungood in the world around us, to undo it? Do we live from abundance or from lack? When we take revenge in our hands, we're living from lack and admitting God's justice isn't good enough or isn't full enough. So God says, vengeance is mine. And instead he says, live peaceably as far as it depends on you with all people. And just a note, can't live peaceably with all people because some people are just jerks, <laughs> you know? Some people just don't want to live in peace. Some people just want to find conflict, but what this text lends us to think, to believe, to act on is that it shouldn't be the job of the Christian to promote unpeace or to promote conflict. We should never initiate conflict when possible. 
Just as another caveat, this isn't saying in all things. This isn't saying bend the goodness of God around peace. The goodness of God is more important than the peace around us. What that means is if somebody is violating the ways of God, then there's going to be some conflict. We talked about it. But if possible, live at peace with all people, because like we said before, our God is a reconciling God. We are called to be peacemakers for a reason. Because when we live in peace, people see a God that's bigger than what we fight about. When we live in reconciliation, people see a God who's bigger than the problems that divide us. And so can you imagine in the first century church what it was like when they were literally being killed and they said, we forgive you. Can you imagine what it was like when Jesus sent it from the cross? So he calls us to be a people of peace rather than to promote retaliation to the injustice that we might have to live through. So we, as followers of Jesus, we don't retaliate, we reconcile. We don't punish, we pursue in love. We don't give a proportional response to the evil done to us. We profess the love we have for those who persecute us. We don't seek revenge, we serve others. And we do all of those things because we can't, over, because we can't be overcome by evil, but rather we overcome evil with good. And that's the next verse. It says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And all this thing, what it does is it, is it shows us and reminds us that God calls us to the better way of love and not the bitter way of revenge or retaliation. And that's not the currency the world trades in. One extinguishes rage and one fans the flames of it. And so he says, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. He uses this phrase right before, then rather if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing this, you'll be heaping burning coals on his head. It's a figure of speech that basically drives home the point that if you want to really love people and you want to really change people, compassion is a better catalyst for change than condemnation ever is. I think you probably know that to be true. I know I do. If you want to go meta here and pull back the curtain, you can look at just how do we do with condemnation? Does it actually change people in the States? Look at the uh, uh, recidivism rate for our jails. We have a condemnation culture when you break the law. You break the law, you get a ticket. You break the law, you go to jail. Depending on the stats you read, somewhere around 76 to 78% of people that go to jail in the first five years of coming out of jail go back to jail. I don't know if condemnation changes people. I think sometimes it's called for, don't get me wrong, but I don't know if it ultimately changes people. I think what God is calling his people to do is love so radically that they see the error of those ways and the goodness of love and they choose the better way of love. I think he's saying that compassion is a far greater catalyst for change than condemnation. That's why like when you read literature now about how to punish children, I don't have to, mine are perfect, but when I try to punish the other children on the soccer team, it talks about like now there's this movement about time ins versus time outs. Have you guys read that? Don't get me wrong, my child lives in timeouts most days of the week, but, but it's the idea that then you want to sit with them, and instead of being like sent off because you're not good enough, we stop the cycle, we talk about why it's bad, and then we sit with them and say, hey, this is not who we are together. It's Genesis 3 versus Genesis 1. We don't sit here and say that, man, sin broke the world, and that's the whole gospel. The gospel is God created us to be ambassadors for him. Sin is a blip in that, but he's restoring us and getting back to it. It's an identity conversation, not a consequence conversation when it comes to the gospel. And so when we talk about what actually changes people, it starts with this. You know who God made you to be? And do you know how much he loves you? And, and I know this is true because the Bible says it's true. It's Romans 2. Do you know? Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, God's kindness, forbearance and patience, 
not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. So you know why you know that God is good? He was kind to you. John, 1 John 1 says it even more clearly. We love, why? Because God first loved us. You don't get to take any credit in that. You know that? Every bit of love that you have for other people comes because Jesus loved you, whether you know it or not. It's how we have been changed. It's how God calls us to change others. I love what one pastor wrote. He said, the church should not be outraged at people outside our community who need grace. We should be outraged at people inside our community who refuse to give it. We're called to the better way of love and not the bitter road of retaliation. Because it's really, really, really easy to answer evil in kind because people deserve it sometimes. People deserve it. People deserve injustice because they've hurt people. This isn't a conversation about the people that really don't deserve it. This is one about people that actually do wrong in your life. And God says, don't do wrong back. I love what Martin Luther said about it. He said, men commonly regard uh, as the victor the one who has the last word and who can deal the last blow. Whereas, at a matter of fact, he who is the last to inflict pain is the one who is far worse off for the evil remains with him while the other is done with it. You guys ever said exactly what you want to say to somebody who hurt you? Exactly the way you want to say it. I remember when I was a teenager, I fought a lot with my parents. It's God's design. And I fought a lot with my parents and especially my, my mom. I remember there was a moment, there was one moment when I said exactly what I wanted to say to her. I think I was probably 18. And... I was hurt and I was mad and all these things and probably none of it was justified. I remember saying exactly what I wanted to say, exactly how I wanted to say it. And I remember she just sat there in silence and started crying and I thought, oh my gosh, I just made my mom cry. (laughs) And I felt horrible. God says, don't repay evil for evil because if you do, then you're the one that carries that along with you. He's calling us to a better way. I love what church father Pelagius says, the enemy has overcome us when he makes us like himself. To repay evil for evil is to become like Satan. To repay good for evil is to become like God. Be like God. Like we said at the beginning, the Christian is not just like everybody else with a slight difference. He's essentially different. He has a different nature and he's a different man. He's calling us to create a world that looks beyond the brokenness of the world and calls it into something better. St. Francis of Assisi Again, church father has a story when a young nobleman complained to him. He, he runs up to him. He says, hey, St. Francis, uh, there's a thief, he, and he, he's a rascal, and he stole my boots. And St. Francis responds and says, well, then run after him quickly and give him your socks. <laughs> it's the idea that this is how we respond to evil with the overwhelming good of God, because that's what was shown to us. It's what the Bible says Jesus did in 1 Peter 2. When they hurled their insults at Jesus, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges judges justly. You know, I I love the idea of responding to evil with good, not just because we're called to do it, and and not just because I I don't want to be an evil person in kind, not not just because I think out of the capacity to, moreover, when you look and you peel back the layers and you go big picture, the reason why as followers of Jesus, we don't respond to evil in kind is because we don't answer evil in kind because kindness is God's answer for evil in the first place. Jesus took your evil and crucified himself. (laughs) Jesus took your evil and ran to the cross. 
The reason why as a movement of followers of Jesus, we don't respond for evil with evil, rather we meet evil with good is because God's answer for evil right here, right now is his goodness. And so he says, be like me. And so today, as we end, we end with communion. But as we talk about what this means, look, I think we live in a culture that promotes anger when anger's done to us, whether it's road rage or larger things. And so I probably land with what Jesus says. You know, we're you know what we're supposed to do next when people are unjust to us? Just pray for them. Really tough to hate people you pray for. That's why we pray for me every Sunday to start the service. That's a first step. You know that? It's a first step. If you feel anger welling up inside of you because somebody, let's go little, cut you off or larger because somebody yells at you for your faith or even larger hurts your kid. If you feel anger well up inside of you, if you feel the need to retaliate in that moment, pray for him and ask the Holy Spirit to give you a measure of compassion that can only come from a crucified Christ that died for you. And then one step farther I'd say is maybe we write the ways down where we wanted to respond with evil and we say, if this was gonna be an evil response, what can I actually do that shows loving kindness? So instead of maybe yelling at X, Y, and Z, I write a letter to somebody and tell them how much I love them. Because we're a movement of people that respond to the evil in the world with the kindness of God. Because that's what he did for us. And so we're taking communion two weeks in a row. And, and this might be even worse than the fire in the first place in terms of, you know, changing things up. But why we're doing it is because it's a reminder of what God did. That man was persecuted so that we might be saved. And let me tell you something, it was your sin that put him there and it was mine. And so we, we come to the table this morning because it is the single greatest way that God defied the evil in the world. He died for you. And as we come and as we eat and as we drink, we have five tables all spread throughout, so go to each one. As we come and do those things, we're reminded when we want to retaliate in kind, that God's kindness found us first. And so we eat and we drink. We take the broken body and the shed blood. And remember the higher call of Christians to live in a different way. You know what amazes me? That the church from this moment to about 313 had like a nonviolent takeover of the whole world. It showed what the power of kindness could do if the spirit of God is behind it. Let it be so again. Let me pray for us and we'll come take communion together. God, I'm thankful for the kindness of God. I pray that we don't go through persecution, (laughs) but we will. I pray that in the middle of the harder times when we are justifiably angry at people that hurt, at people that are just at situations and circumstances and authorities that don't value the same good that God is and does. I pray in those moments, Holy Spirit, you you give us an overwhelming sense of compassion so that we might, like Christ did, bless those who persecute us. Because that's how we show them that the kindness of God and the love of God is better and bigger. And that's how we show them that they are loved by God too. So Holy Spirit, help, because this one's tough. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.